today we'll be continuing our discussion of T.S. Eliot's The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. In part one, we covered roughly the first third of the poem, and in part two, we'll resume our conversation with Prufrock's Coffee Spoons. We'll discuss, among other things, Prufrock's allusions to John the Baptist, Lazarus, and Hamlet, the disjointed portrait of Prufrock's probable love interest, and the twinning of aging and fantasy in the final stanzas. This is Aaron Olonik. And this is Wes Alwyn. And you're listening to Subtext. So before we begin, I just wanted to say that if you're listening to this on the feed for The Partially Examined Life, we won't always be here and not all episodes of Subtext will appear here. If you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to us on the podcast app of your choice, either by going to subtextpodcast.com slash subscribe or by searching for us within the app itself. Okay, part two of our two-part series on the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. At the end of our last episode, we decided that we needed a minute for decisions and revisions before we could <laughs> come back to more of this poem. The stanza we left on was the Do I Dare Disturb the Universe stanza. And now we are ready to measure out life in coffee spoons. Nice. Good segue. <laughs> <laughs> so should we read this uh, stanza? Yeah, go for okay. it. For I have known them all already, known them all, have known the evenings, mornings, afternoons. I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. I know the voices dying with a dying fall beneath the music from a farther room. So how should I presume? I'm trying to get into the mind of Prufrock in these readings. <laughs> so what is he worried about? <laughs> when I read this the first time, when he says I've known them all already, don't known them all. And then of course the colon would indicate that the all refers to the evenings, mornings, afternoons. But isn't he also at the same time referring to the people that he's going to be meeting at these parties? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think he's talking about these social occasions, which the idea of measuring out life with coffee spoons is, you know, he's, he's having tea with people, tea and coffee to go up a few stanzas. Mm -hmm. Time for a hundred revisions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. The visions and revisions are nominally about his indecision but of course they're also evocative of what he would do as an artist so we'll have to revisit <laughs> the question of the relationship between this social dissatisfaction and social indecision and what it means to be an artist it's interesting because you get on the one hand right the evocation of evenings and mornings and coffee spoons it's it's so you know what he's been doing is social he's been hanging out with these women <laughs> I don't know if there are other men there, if it's just him surrounded by women. I think the original title of this poem was Prufrock with the Women or something like that. I think it's Among the Women, I want to say. Among the Women, right. So, lucky Prufrock. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> or maybe not so lucky, but yeah, apparently been hanging out. <laughs> he's, been, he's been doing these um, tea times or whatever it is with these women. It's been, been going on long enough to connect that social existence with a sense of utility measuring out life and coffee spoons so i suppose it's you know uh, there's some sense that this is meaningless dissatisfying and when, once again i think we're supposed to think about the possibility of an essential fraudulence to social relations and then by way of that a possible fraudulence to love itself so that when we get down to so how should i presume maybe i should just ask the question you know what is so presumptuous in this context Assuming that he's going to ask this question, which 
for the sake of argument, we're taking to be a proposal of some kind. Or And what you just said, you're really opening this up for me because the October night, the sense of the evening at the beginning of the poem and also the red light district that we talked about last time, I was thinking that this was, you know, he was going to a party. I think that's even explicitly what I said in the first episode, maybe. And now I'm seeing what you're talking about. So I was thinking that he was going into an environment in which there were, you know, men and women and that it was a party or that it was, you know, the sun is going down and he's going to some event and there would be, um, you know, an equal distribution, though he's preoccupied with the women at at the party. And the thing that kind of stopped me about that is in the previous stanza, it describes his morning coat, which I know is only worn until five or six in the evening. Mm. So he would have to go home and change if he was going out to a dinner party, actually. But it is the evening, supposedly, right? Right. The evening is laid out against the sky. So now I'm wondering, is he leaving the afternoon tea and going home at the beginning of the stanza or something like that? But but the reason why all this occurs to me mm. is because what you're describing, I'm realizing he must be in an all-female environment. And if it's a tea, if it's in the afternoon, I can now sort of picture him as a kind of a eunuch in the middle of this ladies auxiliary tea or something (laughs) like that. And so I'm presuming that his presumption is in such an environment, how could I turn this into an opportunity for a potential romance or Mm -hmm. how should I sort of Mm -hmm. break the mold of this particular kind of afternoon where, where he must be accepted as some sort of benign, inoffensive figure Mm -hmm among these women and put myself out there in a sexual way and sort of change the tone of this, not explicitly sexual, but you know what I mean, in a romantic way um, and change Mm -hmm. the tone of their interaction with me. Yeah, that's very good. You could read it both ways. So even if it's a, whether it's a social engagement with, well, I'm not sure if, if there are men there, then you could see him as simply preoccupied with women. And and so among the women might just mean psychologically among, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I think it heightens it to just to, take it more literally and say, this is why I wanted to call it J. Alfred friend zone because (laughs) the question of presumptuousness arises because he's in a situation where obviously the person that he's courting may not know that she's being courted. I think, you know, I think that's probably a strong possibility. So he has failed, as you point out, to establish that tone. And there's a very distinct shift in tone from the friendly to the romantic And there are people who, you know, (laughs) who have trouble shifting gears in that way. They have trouble moving out of what Freud called aim-inhibited libido. So Freud saw this as, you know, our our friendly relations with each other, our platonic relations with each other as sublimating sexual libido. And to try to move back to the sexual also inevitably involves something a bit aggressive, or at the very least, it involves something potentially offensive and potentially objectifying. And for someone who's um, too much of a good guy, as we discussed last time, or too much with the preemptive absolution of being the good guy, like just like Guido, or an, or an analogy to Guido, I think um, being so invested in, in that means that he's going to have trouble inhabiting this other role. It will feel presumptuous. Mm. In the sense that, you know, he has to presume that she's interested in that way. And I think later on in the poem, he's going to ask whether it's worth it, right? Would it be worth it if I were rejected? And a, a friend might say, come on, it's not a big deal. <laughs> 
you know, she rejects you, she rejects you. Right. What's the big deal? You could, it's a numbers game, move on to the next or whatever. So you're saying that he needs a Will Smith to coach him. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, for him, this is of cosmic importance. It's a disturbance of the universe. What I'm trying to get at here by discussing Freud is how something like uh, this shift from a more benign social situation to something more sexual could feel... So terrifying, almost like, uh, like like actual danger, maybe even existential danger. But beyond that, dangerous to others, dangerous to the women, dangerous to the in, entire order of things, if we want to take universe that way. So it's like, as if he's he feels the responsibility of an eruption of sexual reality into the world of social forms, which keeps that under wraps. If he is in some sort of afternoon or late afternoon or, or tea time environment, say, you know, four or five o'clock, he would have to go home and change, I think, in, to then go out for the evening. And that would be a different set of clothes, right? That would mm -hmm. be a different environment, one more conducive to the kinds of things that he seems to be after. So I think that's, it would also be disturbing the universe in, um, as you say, in the sense of, of disturbing the time because there would be some oddity, I think, about trying to make overtures to a woman in the afternoon <laughs> or mm. something. And so he would have to, yeah, I don't know about that whole timeline theory, but that seems to be part of it. Like what you're saying that he's out of place in, in terms of the season and the hour and the everything is not right here. And it would actually be some kind of a violation if he were to do what it is that he's planning on doing by inserting himself into this gang of ladies and then hitting on one of them. It's an evening activity. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking about this idea of measuring out my life with coffee spoons. And it occurred to me that this is a, um, it speaks to his caution and, um, but which later on he will right, identify himself as, as a kind of Polonius and an over cautious person, not, not Hamlet, but prudent to the point of possibly being, a, being a fool. So he's taking, he's been taking baby steps, so to speak. And because he's middle-aged, you could imagine this on a, um, on a more surreal level. If David Lynch were directing this, you could imagine that he has actually been, or, or maybe it's a Twilight Zone episode, you know, he, he's been doing this for his entire life with the same woman showing up the same place, having coffee, <laughs> thinking about proposing and never doing it. And this just goes on and on. And perhaps that just is what the universe is at some level if you're if you're thinking pessimistically about it not growth and generation and and a work leading somewhere in the way that kind of got an evocation of that with uh hesiod and works and days but just this repetition just this mere repetition of something that's very very um very incremental let's say and uh, the whole idea of measuring out life with coffee spoons, it occurred to me that that's a kind of work, you know, in, a, in miniature. So again, it, it made me think of the works and day stanza and the idea of there'll be a time to murder and create, you know, that murder and create line is sort of thrown in. It's like a little bit of the unconscious dynamic of this suddenly emerging because he's talking about a face to meet the faces that you meet and time for a hundred indecisions and this and that. The idea of murdering and creating is really quite jarring in that context. So coming back to this, now we get the more mundane version of that, which is not doing anything so dramatic as that work-wise, but just measuring out life with coffee spoons. That Twilight Zone episode that you just outlined before was... <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm still reeling from that one. (laughs) (laughs) That would be a good one. Yeah, that would be really good. (laughs) You should be a writer for the new. Is that still going on? I think there is a new one, but it's, I heard it wasn't very good. Well, that's because they haven't hired you yet for the Proof Rock episode. I don't think anyone's going to be able to replicate what Rod Serling did with that. That's true. Not just the voice, but the screenwriting. It's sui generis. What do we make of this? The voice is dying with a dying fall. That's one of my favorite lines in the poem. It's a really elegant line. Beneath the music from a farther room. I'm not sure how this connects up with coffee spoons, or maybe I do, but a dying fall is obviously like a slowing rhythm or diminishing volume. So so the, the voices are diminishing beneath the music. So this is maybe the party has started, the nighttime party has started or something, or or he's describing the point at which words end and people are entertained or swept up into the music. And that is in a farther room, so that's unavailable to him while he's still sitting there with his coffee spoons, maybe. But the you know, something um celebratory and rapturous that he's incapable of of taking part in or which is removed from him in another part of the house where they're having this party. I can picture the house very clearly, but I, I don't know mm. if it's a house. <laughs> Maybe I made enough of a connection right there. I'm not really sure. Yeah. So he's listening to something going on in the in another room. He's hearing voices intermingled with music. It's an interesting experience because it involves hearing people talking but not being able to make sense of what they're saying, right? So it's just mm-hmm. inarticulate, which is really odd when you think about it. You might think of it as like listening to another language, or maybe it's like the Charlie Brown effect. Where <laughs> 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 you ignore adults, and it's just wah, wah, wah. But regardless, so it's chatter. But w- the one thing that you do get that's still preserved in that situation, despite the fact that you, you can't really make out what people are saying, is you can make out tonalities, and you can get the general sometimes I think the general feeling of what's going on and in this kind of very polite drawing room environment it sounds like people struggling to make conversation struggling to make small talk right and I get this sense of the when sentences come to an end it's not with excitement (laughs) it's not (laughs) it's not an uptick tonally it's a grave accent i guess you mean not in proof rocks room you mean in the music room yeah oh okay i read that differently oh what did how did you i meant that as the music started up the voices were diminished you know oh i see the voices that he's with yeah no 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 in the in the other room they're like you know when when a party starts and there's some chatter and the music starts playing and as it gets louder people are stopping talking because then the music either overcomes it or they're just sitting and listening to it so i'm i'm getting this idea Mm. that in the farther room the party is starting so it's actually a a good thing though the the repetition of dying i thought was more of proof rock's reflection on the fact that he can't join in that Mm -hmm. kind of revelry or you know whatever cole porter kind of situation i'm imagining in the other room Mm. But, but I like your reading too. <laughs> yeah, I think these are two legitimate readings. I mean, in one case, you have him envying some more dynamic social situation that's happening far off, which fits. Mm-hmm. It's similar in the sense that he's still cut off. I still have imagined this as a very staid social environment. In either case, he's not where the music is. <laughs> right. And that dying and the voices and the music... It's going to come back with the with the mermaids, right? So maybe we'll be able to make sense of it <laughs> once we get to the end. Yeah. Or maybe I'm just imagining the music. Hmm. So, oh no, th- they will sing to me. Yeah, there yeah. is music. Right. 
or they really they won't sing to him. Mm. He's not getting sung to in either case. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, but I'm just thinking about what you said. I mean, in a way, you could just you could think about the dying of the voices as just being relative to the uptick of the music. Mm-hmm. In either case, it's um the question arises: How should I presume? And you have to wonder what why does this heighten the sense that his his proposal is going to be presumptuous? Is it because he's cut off from people he's not really you know it gives you the sense that he's not really part of this scene in some way you know is he is he sitting on the couch by himself in the other room while everyone parties you know in the main room what's going on here Mm. and one of the bits of secondary literature i read someone associated this to twelfth night Mm. because shakespeare uses this phrase dying fall oh and orsino's opening lines right yeah, if music be the food of love, play on, give me excess of it, that surfeiting, the appetite may sicken and so die, that strain again, it had a dying fall, oh, it came over my ear like the sweet sound that breathes upon a bank of violets, stealing and giving odor, enough, no more, tis not so sweet now as it was before. Mm. I don't think it's a stretch to, because uh, T.S. Eliot is so elusive and was so into Shakespeare to make this connection. Yeah. Sorry, Elliot, for the fact that this is one of my favorite lines and you stole it. (laughs) (laughs) Is there any sense to be made of that connection? Well, it's it's funny, the dying fall that you're talking about. I I was thinking if if music be the food of love play on. So I suppose if, um, if people are feeding off of music and he's feeding off of tea and toast, (laughs) you know, and being, being his little parochial self in the other room, I don't know what else the that strain again. It had a dying fall. What is that referring to? Is that referring to the music? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, the dying fall usually just means it's a diminuendo. Okay. But it's a classier way of saying it. So, do you want to read the next stanza? Sure. And I've known the eyes already, known them all. The eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase. And when I am formulated, sprawling on a pen, when I am pinned and wriggling on the wall, then how should I begin? to spit out all the butt ends of my days and ways. And how should I presume? Known the eyes already. That's really, that's quite something. It gives you the sense, right, that what he sees in other people is primarily his concern about how they see him, the eyes Mm. that fix you in a formulated phrase. We talked about this a little above, the idea of they will say how his hair is growing thin and... And all that other stuff. So this, and, and the idea that it's it's um to fix you in a formulated phrase, right, is to recognize your you as someone with a certain sort of character who's not free necessarily to make choices and to do things, but simply a product of one's habits and traits, and and in many cases, habits and traits that are difficult or impossible to change including the habit of being shy or diffident, whatever it's going on with him. Mm. So he's driven to be the character that he is. And in the moment of confronting people, that sense is amped up, that sense of unfreedom. So it's, it's very unmusical when you think about it now in the context of the music and the freedom that that affords. It's conf- the, the, the social situation to him is confining. So this is why I thought that in the, in the previous stanza, I've known them all, already known them all. Um, and then we have, I've known the eyes already known them all, that he's also saying he knows all these people. So he has, you know, he's fixed them the way that they have 
supposedly fixed him. Mm-hmm. What struck me in the second line, I mean, the eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase, obviously he's worried that he'll be, you know, skewered by their wit or, you know, whatever they're going to, however they're going to encapsulate him. But I thought that this is a really odd blending of eyes and mouth, like the eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase. <laughs> it's, it's a mixed metaphor. Right, right. That's, that's good. I didn't notice that. Yeah. I just thought of another meaning to fix you in a formulated phrase because I associated to this moment when you're talking to someone and you your fear of their response mm-hmm. right so there's a lot of this is about eye contact and looking at other people's eyes and recognizing them recognizing you and being afraid of their response to what you're going to say how it's going to how what you do and say will, will alter their conception of you and uh being fixed is sort of like being a deer in the headlights in the moment so that it it has the effect of making the interaction more rigid and Mm. there's less spontaneity in what you say and so you know what you say might be very formulated i don't think this Mm. is the primary reading by the way this is just a as an alternate way to take this actually i think maybe i don't know maybe i'll balance (laughs) i think maybe they're equal readings because the idea is that others are pigeonholing him right Mm -hmm. they are in their minds formulating him but the the difference between that and that actually shaping his life is thin right so it's it's not just that other people are pigeonholing him in their minds but once you're pigeonholed in the minds of others you that affects you and it, it pigeonholes you in actuality it confines your behavior so in other words if i have a certain character and People respond to that, oh, that's just what Wes does. That's his habit, his days and ways, as Elliot puts it at the end of the stanza. And he tends to be, what's something that's not too negative? <laughs> a real asshole. This. He tends to be an arrogant <laughs> asshole. No. Then you get uh, to be formulated is, is not just for others to have this picture of you as someone who's a product of character and therefore unfree, but you become less free because you... You don't have as much room to move in the social situation. So in other words, it becomes mm. hard to develop a new habit around people, whether it's a, you know, like quitting cigarettes, the butt ends, or whether it's trying out a little bit of a new self or a new personality mm. with people, because people are going to respond to that and say, well, that's not who you are normally. It's going to draw attention. So you do become formulated by other people's responses to you. That's why you have to move somewhere far away, like Gatsby, go to Long Island. <laughs> Or Salt Lake City. Sorry. (laughs) Wes, could you like not reveal my secret plans to everyone on this podcast, please? Let us go to Salt Lake City (laughs) and get ourselves away from the city. Sorry, city and city to this room. (laughs) Terrible. Uh, Yeah, so so formulated this to be, yeah, it's a very stark image of sprawling on a pin, pinned to the wall, like a bug, a scientific specimen right for study and i was wondering what the butt ends were but i guess i literally know that it's cigars but cigars are why why cigars as opposed to cigarettes do people spit out the butt ends of cigarettes don't they they? no they just throw oh you're thinking of when you cut off the end of the cigar and then spit that out i was thinking of being done with a cigarette and disposing of the butt no i don't think that works wouldn't spit it out 
you kind of flick it off your fingers. This wouldn't fly in an MFA workshop, I think, if that if it's cigarettes, which is <laughs> not an advertisement for an MFA workshop, let me tell you. But uh, the, the <laughs> yes, this poem would be much different after being workshopped. <laughs> yeah, right. I really don't see where you're going with this. Is yeah, because well, because when you, when you first, I know nothing about cigars, but when you first smoke it, I mean, when you first have to light it, don't you bite off one end of it first? Yeah, you do bite it off and spit it out. Yeah. Unless you're fancy and you use some kind of cutting thing to do that. Well, anyway, why does he want to go here if all this bad stuff is going to happen to him? <laughs> that's what I want to know. There's women, that's why. Oh, well, he doesn't even like the women all that much. You know, I think at the end of the last episode, I was like, I don't know, is Proof Rock really a jerk? And then it ended. But Yeah. Is he in love? Is Proof Rock in love? It's a love song. I don't know. If this is him being in love, then that's very sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's very tiresome. It is the least seductive love song ever written. <laughs> well, there are butt ends in here. That's pretty sexy. But yeah, right. Just thinking about spitting out the butt ends of my my ways and days. An after dinner cigar. I mean, I'm trying to think about the metaphor here. What does it mean to spit out all the butt ends of your days and and ways? Right. So he's measured out life in mm, that's... coffee spoons very in- incrementally. He's been spending all this time that the moment of the proposals now you know how should i begin so this is the way he's characterizing what it would mean to actually do something now and 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 hit on this woman or maybe even propose marriage to her just go straight from zero to 60 no no. hey do you want to go on a date just (laughs) let's get married We've been dating, haven't we? I've been showing up here for 20 years. So to to actually utter these, whatever words he's come to utter is like a spitting out. And um, Mm. I I was thinking of cigarettes just because the butt ends, you know, the the idea of his days and ways being exhausted, like, like a cigarette that's been smoked. And it's at this point of exhaustion that here he is ready to do something and that the doing of this is the spitting out of the product of all that it's evoking hesiod and it's evoking work in some way and even agricultural work but also polonian advice about how to live life how to tend one's garden how to do everything from farming to being a good person the kind of a self-helpy conception of life which begins with the necessity of work because of our fallenness we get here an idea that work comes to an end and the, what it ends in is this proposal and that's like spitting this out. I don't know. Can you make any more sense of that? That's really good. That's far more profound than what I was thinking, which is just the lack of consumption in these two stanzas. So, it, I mean, at other times, obviously he takes toast and tea and later he's going to be too full to act. So he does consume things in this in this poem. So maybe this is the wrong reading for me to take. But I just know like the, the coffee spoons and the and the, the butt ends being spit out. I mean, you're, you're not actually, he doesn't say like, I've measured out my life with cups of coffee or something like that. It's the spoon. And by the same token, the, the butt end of the cigar or wh- whatever we want to say is the part that you don't smoke and you spit it out. There's like a regurgitation or something that's mm. happening here. He's not actually, in terms of his daily life, which is what he's describing here, I think, rather than what he's doing at the party, it's associated with like the the mechanism or the discarded parts rather than like receiving sustenance from the actual, not that you receive sustenance from a cigar, but the discarded parts is what he's are, are what he's focusing on. And um, in doing this proposal, it's almost like I'm, I'm thinking of the 
It's hard not to associate to the smoke and the fog, right? Mm-hmm. The pollutants, which are the byproducts of human civilization and, so- and social life, right? And here, that's what he seems to have to offer is the kind of the trash or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and there may be something in here, you know, the ends of my ways and day- days and ways. He may be thinking of the fact that he's middle-aged, right? At the age of 23, <laughs> He's middle-aged and therefore he's already reached the end or he's close enough to the end of his life to think of it that way. The, the idea of him being formulated early on is the idea of him comments about the things that about his age, essentially. So it's uh, beyond character, as I pointed out. It's specifically being pegged as someone who is too old for love in some way, that his um, there's something inconsistent about age and his uh, belated proposal, which brings us back to the concept of this sort of being an anti-seduction poem or something, a, re- a reverse seduction poem, where it's like, you know, it's not, marry me, you're, 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 you're going to get a hold. It's, you know, marry me, I'm old. <laughs> I'm already old, so marry me. Um, something like that. So the, to give the proposal is to, instead of doing something spontaneous with one's youthful vitality and, you know, And if he were doing that right, we'd get a real sense of love in the poem instead of what we do get. It's as if saying something, expressing his love is saying something about his age. That's what I'm trying to get at. To make the proposal is a confession of mortality. That's part of the hesitation, I think. Hmm. The concept of presumptuous means that he's worried about the effect on, on others, I think. And the effect here is that his love is not love. It's just the... The waste product, that's the, the phrase I'm looking for, the waste byproduct mm-hmm. of all the living that he's done. Too much living. So much living that he's like a coal plant, right, that's produced all this ash. And that's, that's what he brings to the table. <laughs> I'm, I'm taking a bleak poem and making it even bleaker. <laughs> so when you, when you offer yourself up to someone, do you, you know, are you offering, what is it you're offering? What does it mean to offer your 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 love? Does it mean to offer a certain state of mind towards another person, a certain type of habitual relation over time? Is it just a subjective feeling or is it, is what you're offering when you make the proposal, a certain form of life, a certain way of life that's predicated on you engaging in certain behaviors, right? So for instance, even as mundane as washing the dishes (laughs) and picking up your underwear off the floor and then the anxiety there is that is, is what I'm offering something that's um, entirely formulaic and also not adaptable, not changeable in the context of a relationship, which is something that right people always often have a problem with is that they have their they come to the table with all these habits and um, that becomes the disastrous because the habits are inconsistent and people have trouble making the adjustment. Wes, you're like you're breaking me. I can't. <laughs> what do you mean? Oh my gosh. I'm like <laughs> Why what what do you mean? You're you're destroying my belief in love right now. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I'm gonna blame it on Prefrock. Oh wow. I'm just trying to make sure that this stanza is sprawling on a pen before we <laughs> before we actually take leave of it. <laughs> well, I think I'll be before this is over. <laughs> yeah. It's a real and interesting concern. What does it mean to offer love? And then maybe Prufrock at the very beginning is right. Do not ask what, what is it? Just go make the visit. Just do it. Because if you mm-hmm. ask what is it, these are the sorts of considerations you 
you get into, right? We're, we're temporal creatures, so love isn't just some time slice in which someone has affectionate or loving feelings. Love means a, a, uh, um, ways and days. Mm-hmm. Love is spread out temporarily. It includes negative components as, as well. If it is to be love, it has to be organized in the right kind of way, even if it is negative. So you can think of like Augustinian theodicy, right? If there is evil in the world, it's, it's for the greater good and it's privation. So you have to recast the negative moments as privation that are structurally necessary to the creation of a greater whole. And then that becomes a different conception of love than the everyday conception and so maybe maybe the everyday conception is not up to the, the task and t.s Eliot, through prufrock is expressing a very philosophical concern you know it sucks to be a philosopher who's going to propose right <laughs> well let me let me you, you want to ask what is it <laughs> and then you write a long poem instead of proposing well then let me fight back against this because i have to come back hmm. from the abyss. I thought I was going to win you over with St. Augustine, but I guess not. <laughs> well, you know, close. But um, these abstractions, so so what you're proving to me then is that Prufrock doesn't love this woman. Surprise, this isn't a love song, though it seemed to be. Um, to look at something abstract, or, or I think to look at oneself, like if this were a love song, then he would be not looking at the his inabilities to not want to presume all of these inabilities um, related to himself and his own mental comportment around marriage or relationships or women in general. So he wouldn't be dwelling on his, his abstract sense of, of incompatibility. He would be looking at the woman and the woman's habits and saying that he wants to, if he loved her, saying that he wants to adjust himself to that or that he found something adorable or or admirable or whatever in her own way of being that he mm-hmm. finds compatible with his. So to me, this kind of philosophical um, frame of mind and this idea of like, what, what do I have to offer? Is, that's an entirely selfish way of being. And it's entirely not conducive to love or to caring about another person, because if you love another person, you're directed towards them and you're not thinking about, I mean, sure, you get a sense of like, oh, gee, you know, how can I measure up? Or maybe this doesn't, you know, maybe this isn't going to work or maybe I'm not right for this person. You get all of those things, Mm. but you don't have some sort of abstract conception of anything that's entirely about one's own. Like in a way, I think that's like kind of the ultimate selfishness to be like, what do, what do I have to offer? Well, you could just love this person and <laughs> give something of yourself. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that if he were really in love, then he would be familiar with this woman's personality and way of being and would want to join himself to that rather than saying that he couldn't engage with life at all and doesn't want to do anything because he doesn't feel himself capable of joining himself with anyone in this kind of abstract way. I think you're right. He's very obviously self-centered, right? And this would be the worst kind of love poem to receive. Oh, I've gotten worse. <laughs> yeah, have you? <laughs> Just in the sense of badly written or in the nope. sense of... <laughs> <laughs> so to love someone, in a way, he has to... We all have to escape our own gravitational orbit. You know, we have to escape our self-preoccupation. And that includes escaping preoccupation with the love of others. This is one one thing that uh, the psychoanalyst Eric Fromm wrote a book called The Art of Loving, 
very small book that I recommend and that um, we actually did a partially examined life episode on it a long time okay, ago. Okay, that's why that's familiar to me. I, I think one of the insights of that book is that when people think about love, they think a lot about being loved and they think a lot about loving other people in ways that are um, that are often conditional, even if it's just unconscious, and in particular conditional on that other person loving them back. So... Mm-hmm. To really love, in a way, you have to transcend the concern about rejection. I think that's the hardest part. And not even at this moment when you're making the, the proposal, but within the relationship itself, because it's always a possibility. It's a possibility in a big sense. The person will die or, or decide they want to get away from you. It's a possibility in smaller senses where you just feel rejected by some everyday interaction with the person, and then that has to be negotiated and so love has to be a decision which transcends all those possibilities and so you don't um to truly love you really just it's like willing something or deciding something it's like an ultimate act of free will that's when you get there not when you're thinking about whether the other person is going to love you back or even when maybe even whether they're the right person for you when that's really freeing though because i mean then you're not thinking like, how can I measure up or whatever? Like, if you get past your whole, that whole inward direction and just focus outwardly, then probably you also, by that same token, become more attractive because you're not so, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like proof rock, you know, uh, tripping yourself up and and being so ruminating on and unable to act. It's like it, um, I don't know, either way, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, either for the, for good or ill. And I think this goes for work as well and for including artistic creativity people get hung up on or or they develop inhibitions to work because they get worried about fame and fortune essentially they get so worried about the reception for their work and they get so caught up in the eyes of others that it becomes not an act of love anymore and not enjoyable. It's too anxiety producing. And unfortunately, we can't ever fully escape that, right? We have to be thinking about an audience and so on and so forth. So it's it's very tricky with with work, but the the solution to the inhibition is to be able to, to inhabit the mode of loving and loving what you're doing for there to be more of that than there is of a worry about whether the product is any good or whether it's going to be well received. Just to try and make some connections back to the, the meta narrative about art. Mm. Should we do the next stanza? Yeah. That was a, <laughs> we better speed it up, Wes. Well, yeah, we got to fill out. Uh, we do have quite a few stanzas <laughs> left. Oh my God. All right. <laughs> I know. All right. And I have known the arms already, known them all, arms that are braceleted and white and bare, but in the lamplight, downed with light brown hair. Is it perfume from a dress that makes me so digress? Arms that lie along a table or wrap about a shawl. And should I then presume? And how should I begin? The arms sound to me immediately like a kind of Homeric reference. Mm. It's a Homeric epithet, like um, rosy-fingered Dawn or swift-footed mm-hmm. Achilles. You know, white-armed is, a, uh, is oft-repeated. The Greek word is lo-kolonos. Huh. And lovely-haired as well is another very, very common epithet so knowing knowing about Eliot's education i don't think it's a stretch to say that he's taking these very romantic in the broad sense homeric epithets and 
turning them into something, I don't think sinister is the right word, but but very unromantic and, and maybe objectifying, right? It, it, it feels like mm-hmm. someone cutting up the body or focusing on a body part as opposed to focusing on the whole person. Two words stick out to me in this stanza. First of all, known the arms. So that's a mm. little bit sexual. Weird. <laughs> mm-hmm. And second of all, downed. So I suppose this could be crueler. He's being a little bit gentle with that word. Yeah. I mean, what does is, what is down evoke, right? It's a goose, right? <laughs> soft feathers you could yeah yeah you could sleep on though you could use those arms as a pillow <laughs> yeah there's a comforting aspect to this as as well and uh, you know these are feminine charms so this isn't it's not just proof rock who feels this way about white bear arms these are these are sexual objects right for for men for women i don't know for women but for men at the very least hmm. so and then perfume from a dress the way arms lo- lie along a table or wrap around a shawl. So the, the, I mean, the upshot of the stanza seems to be that we should ask again why this, how this is related to a feeling that it's presumptuous to proceed. But it seems to me that what he's noting here are these feminine charms as opposed to an engagement with the whole personality. It's something more, something possibly trivial, something not possibly not a basis for something for a more sustained relationship. I think you're right. He's gone too too far out on a limb here and not uh umch And not um <laughs> Sorry. You know, this is the only <laughs> All right, that took you. a while to compute. Um, <clears throat> oh God. I I think I need to be etherized on a table right now. Um <laughs> and this I think is the only real glimpse that we get of her, which is sad in a way. The digression is the digression about the, the light brown hair on the arm. Or, or is it is the entire poem meant to be the digression? Well, I was, the... I was thinking that, right? So a, and now you, you think of the muse-like aspect of, of love, right? Love is supposed to lead to, I mean, this is the way um, Plato or Socrates defines love in the symposium as reproduction in the presence of something or someone beautiful. After rejecting a lot of different conceptions of love, including the soulmate conception, right? The two halves separated by the gods in Aristophanes' account, so that what you're looking for when you look for love is to find one's other half. That's rejected in favor of this more dynamic and reproductive conception, so that a a digression is kind of a pejorative take on that productive component of love, that reproductive component, whether that's children or whether it's the reproductivity involved in being an artist. And so, so in a regular love poem, he's, he might say something like, you know, oh, you've inspired me to write this beautiful thing. <laughs> in this case, it's, it's a digression. It's a hesitation. It's something that keeps him from love. It's not even a sed- seduction, right? It's not a seductive poem. It's something that functions to drive someone away. So it's an interesting reversal, I think. Mm. You wonder what it says about poetry and art in general. Maybe this is a worry that it's this is not that those things are not consistent with action and with romance that they that it outcompetes it in some sense. And then just one final thing, you know, knowing the arms already, known them all. It's not her arms in particular; it's arms of women. It sounds like he's known them on these social occasions, right? Seeing them lie along a table. This is another another aspect that kind of saps it of the romance because it's no longer just just one person, but it's women in general. Mm. 
And it could also just be known in literature, right? He's read too much Homer. <laughs> <laughs> Always with the poetry bashing, you know? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Shall we move on? Yeah. Shall I say I have gone at dusk through narrow streets and watched the smoke that rises from the pipes of lonely men in shirt sleeves leaning out windows? So what's interesting to me is now we get, this is sort of the synthesis of this inner space of women and the what's been going on on the streets outside. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like, you know, he has to communicate this outer world to this inner world of the, of the chambers with women. So is that the masculine world? Is that the lower class world, right? Is that the sexual world to the world of polite society? You can think of it in different ways. Mm. Is that his character, which now I'm starting to associate with the smoke because of the butt ends? Yeah, this kind of collapses what you were saying before with, you know, the fog and the smoke and the pipes, like the smoking pipes and also Mm. the pipes on the, on the, you know, chimney pipes or whatever. Yeah. All all together. And then we get, should we just quickly move on to the, because I feel like we're going to have a lot to say about the next. Yeah, let's go on. I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. So what the hell is going on there? (laughs) He's just the claws. He's not the, the crab or the lobster. Yeah, well, if it's silent seas, then he wouldn't have to say anything, right? <laughs> That's what I get from this. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't have to make an effort. He wouldn't have to be thinking about any of these things. And the claws are very, I don't know, grabby. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> That's perfect. That's exactly what I was. Is that the right thing? <laughs> yep. That's kind of the kind of guy he is. Um, okay. Well, I was thinking... He could grab as many arms as he wants. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's interesting he's disembodied. It's a really interesting image of mm. just the claws mm-hmm. moving across the the ocean floor. I've known the claws. Known them all. <laughs> <laughs> and pushed them away and cracked them open <laughs> and eaten them with a thing of butter. With butter. <laughs> Yeah, grabby is perfect because it seems to be about desire. You know, he's all desire in some ways, but it's not, um, it's a very rough kind of appetitive, potentially destructive desire, right? If he had a hand, he could reach out and grab a hand. Instead, he has a claw, and so he can't reach out without uh, damaging what he's going to get. So, mm. and there's a kind of ravenousness here, you know, if he's, if he's doesn't have a belly, if he's disembodied, then that it can't ever be filled, and so the um, the scuttling is is eternal, looking for things to destroy with one's claws, but you can't ever feed yourself with it. A really, really dark image. Mm. You know why is this the solution to not wanting to talk about <laughs> walking through narrow streets at dusk? Why is this preferable to to talking about that? Because the previous lines are, shall I say, blah, blah, blah. Nope. Uh, instead, I wish I didn't have to talk about that. I'd rather be <laughs> a pair of claw. <laughs> yeah. You know, why, why is it so hard to talk about the other stuff? I suppose there seems to be like a, like a, a sexual divide here of, mm-hmm. of the realm of men and the realm of women mm-hmm. that he can't, he can't bridge that gap. The, the smoking and the outside of the house and the loneliness of the men, they're, they're actually leaning away from, right, they're leaning outside of the, the houses, out of the windows, and away from the province of, of women, the land of women, 
according to Eliot's own sort of conception here, I think, and away from the perfume and the uh, braceleted and bare arms of the women inside mm-hmm. and the sort of cleanliness of that and out into the mucky, sooty, polluted, polluted both through something that maybe doesn't have too much to do with these men or women, but is a byproduct and also is being like actively polluted by people smoking. There's a disconnect that there's a, a gender divide there that that can't be bridged. Mm-hmm. So he's saying he would rather go to a realm in which there is no divide per se or no no mental divide or 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 whatever between uh, men and women. It's it's pure instinct. Well, I think I kind of maybe mischaracterized it because I think he's just attacking himself. Okay. I mean, the first thought here might have been, I should have been a crab scuttling across, you know, you can imagine Elliot writing that before he lands on ragged claws. And and mm-hmm. so you get a kind of spinelessness, but also a kind of the hard shell on the outside. So the spinelessness mm-hmm. speaks to the indecision and the hard shell speaks to his rigidity and formulated nature the way to see it here is he's just attacking himself he's characterizing his um his hesitation and fear and indecision so maybe maybe fear most of all and then i was just asking the question of well why doesn't he not want to why doesn't he want to talk about that stuff and i think you you had a very good answer for that which is he there's something about having to cross the the masculine feminine divide that's too much which is weird because he already has i'm imagining him as the sole man as i said in, in in at like a tea party He's in the friend zone, though. Right, right. Yeah. But that but that friend zone, it's not strictly feminizing per se. It's not like making a guy into one of your girlfriends. But I think I think that's what it's supposed to be here, you know, in, in an extreme mm-hmm. version of that. So in a way, he has a way in, but he's screwed himself up or something even more by, by crossing that divide. Yeah, so I think that's a good point. He's crossed the divide in a sense. And then the sense in which we he hasn't crossed the divide, which we discussed, was the sense in which he can't become like a sexual actor or Mm -hmm. have any sexual or romantic agency. So he's passive in that sense. Um, Says something to do with communicating that outside world that we began with to to this inside world of women. And you wonder, what does that mean beyond communicating the masculine to the feminine or you could look at this in terms of a class element as well if you wanted which i think i think those two things always line up in some sense the thing too is like i think we mentioned at the beginning you know who's like some people say that they don't even know if proof rock ever comes in at all you know Mm -hmm. if everything is from the perspective of the street and he's just sort of mentally coming in or recounting times in which he has been Mm -hmm. inside in in this particular woman's home or whatever I don't know. There's a strangeness about this because the the lonely men in shirt sleeves leaning out of windows, I think of this as a, um, like an after, like smoking out a window as being either an after work activity or an after sex activity yeah. to be leaning out of a window smoking. Well, yeah. And I think it's meant to relate back to like in the beginning, we wondered, is he walking around a red light district? I think you didn't like this reading as much, but is he with the uh, one night, Restless nights and one night cheap hotels. So the association here would be to men leaning out of the windows from those places. So that would provide a pretty straightforward thesis about what's going on here, which is um, some association to a past sexual life or to seeing prostitutes or something like that. Whether, Whether he's directly involved or whether that's just his conception of the nature of male sexual desire. 
I guess I, I'm using that as a bridge to the next yeah, go for it. stanza, because then we have something even stranger going on here. And the afternoon, the evening, sleep so peacefully, smoothed by long fingers, asleep, tired, or it malingers, stretched on the floor here beside you and me. Should I, after tea and cakes and ices, have the strength to force the moment to its crisis? But though I have wept and fasted, wept and prayed, though I have seen my head, grown slightly bald, brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet, and here's no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker, and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker, and in short, I was afraid. Smoothed by long fingers, here we get another Homeric touch, rosy finger, mm -hmm. dawn, um, but it's the afternoon. Well, this is the etherized patient, right? This is the evening and the afternoon, the evening. What do we make of that? Am I missing something there? How can those be the... I mean, the evening is afternoon, but generally we think of the afternoon as still being day. This is why Elliot is happier in England, because this is just tea time to me. <laughs> mm. This is just that, that, you know, that tea time hour of, of afternoon bleeding into evening, you know, four or five o'clock. Now it's no longer... The evening is no longer etherized on a table, but it's asleep. Yeah. So we get a more, and it seems to become the cat <laughs> in my mind. Oh yeah, you're right. Oh, <laughs> stretched on the floor. And it, it seems like in some sense, the outer world now has come inside. Mm -hmm. That's good. And it is, and it's kind of a cozy, it's a nice cozy conception of it. You know, that's the way the stanza begins. <laughs> it doesn't end well, but <laughs> mm -hmm. Sleep, tired, malinger, stretched on the floor. I think the smoothed by long fingers, I was thinking of, you know, just cat hair that's been smoothed. The, the idea of malingering, isn't that like faking an illness to escape mm -hmm. work, doing work? So we, yeah, okay. So we do get a little reference back to sickness, which is what etherization suggests. Right. This also makes me think like, if you're pretending to be asleep, isn't that the classic, I don't want to have sex with you kind of? Mm -hmm. <laughs> That and feigning a headache. Um, mm -hmm. And so, the, so again, the kind of like love and work doubling thing mm. going on here. But then it's, it's stretched on the floor beside you and me. So, so it's, not in the, it's not in the bed at all. It's not, I mean, nor is it an actor in this. It's just the evening. But it seems to be like the, the little spirit animal of this particular day, whether it be the cat or, or the patient or both. Seems to me she has a cat. <laughs> she has a cat okay a cat made of fog yep um yeah but i'm thinking that this is a bedroom but but i don't know why i'm thinking that stretch on the floor here beside you and me i mean i suppose they could still be on the couch in the damn sitting room but mm -hmm. yeah i suppose they must be because it's still after tea and cake and ices mm. but i'm thinking of this as as like a, a bedroom doubling as a recovery room with the mm. you know the evening light coming into it but for some reason, the patient's been left to recover on the floor uh, <laughs> and the people, people are in the bed. So once again, something about should I after tea and cakes and ice is the other. There's somehow it's a conflict between all this nice tea time stuff and then the, the more momentous proposal. But he's wept and fasted, wept and prayed. Wow, that's pretty, it's pretty intense, Prufrock. <laughs> <laughs> I think in the last episode, I said something about how the 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 heavy desserts uh, that he's indulged in have sort of depleted his resolve. So we have this image of being overfed and therefore kind of inert, but then also the idea of having mm. been weeping and 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 fasting and or, or praying is kind of like um, you know screwing up one's 
spiritual fortitude. Yes. You know, I, I, I hadn't thought of this, right? After tea and cakes, th- this is kind of a, the effect of all this stuff, drinking tea and eating cake and is, is to get tired. It's precisely mm-hmm. the opposite of getting um, excited or animated to propose. So by contrast to that, it's, he's fasted and in, in, in preparation for all of this as if there needs to be some sort of, how would you describe it? Not is, is it relig- would you call it religious atonement uh, that he thinks sure. needs to be preparatory? And then we get the comparison to John the Baptist. Sure. And when also being in a state of fasting is supposed to be in a state of greater communion with, with God, it's supposed to help you, um, you know, deny the physical in some way and focus on something higher um, mm. and get, get you into a more prayerful state of mind uh, in a lot of religions, I think. So he's trying to wake himself up. He's trying to stay, you know, you get the idea of someone who's trying to stay awake, someone in this very sleep inducing, you know, from the very beginning with the fog and all the, and the etherized patient, something that where he's kind of stumbling in a, his way through dream landscape or something, trying to wake up <laughs> <laughs> through, uh, through fasting and prayer. And then, but then he becomes sort of like John the Baptist inside out. So, so let's tell the story of that with the head on the platter and all that. So Herod wanted to marry Herodias, who was the wife of his brother, also named Herod. There wasn't a lot of imagination in baby mm-hmm. naming back then. And so Herodias, the, the woman that he wanted to marry, her daughter, who was Salome, danced and she danced so well that Herod wanted to give her anything. And he, she wanted, well, she asked her mother what she should have and since I guess Herodias was was annoyed by John the Baptist trying to intervene in her marriage to her brother-in-law, I guess you could say, she told Salome to ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter and served it up to her. Reluctantly, but yeah. Well, it says reluctantly, but yeah, I'd be annoyed if some guy was telling me what to do with my life and I was King Herod because yeah. he doesn't seem like a guy who takes no for an answer. So how's Proofrock, how has his head been on a platter it sounds almost you know on the face of it it sounds like okay he i know what rejection is like but i'm not sure that's gonna work well first of all i think it's funny because (laughs) john the baptist is a hairy guy right yes yeah i didn't know that yeah he looks like a like a like a crazy lion and everything you know he got he has a lot of hair he's out in the wilderness and he has you know he's like a crazy prophet he has a lot of hair he's always shown as having a lot of hair and again, a kind of, you know, like obviously a, a lot of strength and a lot of inner resolve and spiritual fortitude and all that kind of stuff. So he's he's a he's a good sort of ideal male figure. So there's the joke of Prufrock being bald as John the Baptist. Then there's this idea of him being served up as a meal, which again, we could say is like the sprawling on the pin idea, um, but also this idea that, uh, you know, there's something something with appetite here and the idea that he's sort of eaten himself out of a um, a romantic moment and now mm. he himself is, is being the food served up for, I guess, other people's fun, enjoyment, mm. whatever. So, so I don't think, I don't know that there's a parallel with the John the Baptist story i think it's like it's more like the the um john the baptist story turned inside out so instead of um like intervening in a in a in a sort of courageous way the way john the baptist does he's not intervening and he's not being courageous 
that's what I was thinking was that this is about his lack of courage, which makes it sound as if what he fears, right? He's trying to tell us about the stakes here. What is, what's at stake? Why is he afraid? Sounds like he's afraid of getting his head cut off, so to speak, whatever that means. And if there is, this may be forced, but if there is a comparison, a greater comparison to John the Baptist, then it, it could be the idea that any proposal kind of represents an intervention between the woman he's proposing to and other her other other suitors, basically. So mm. that may be forced, but you know, in the same way that John the Baptist in a way is intervening, you could see any proposal as an intervention between her and all her other possible mates. Because there are other possible mates, there's the real possibility of rejection. There's the possibility that she chooses someone else, which becomes in a way the beheading. And on the other hand, he's not a prophet, which is to say he can't really see the future. So he doesn't really know whether he's going to be rejected, but it doesn't matter. He's, he's still basically in the end, he's afraid and he doesn't act. There's a sense in which the moment of hesitation, which you hesitate, Perhaps because you imagine rejection, you you are playing prophet, even though you're not. When when really the only way to roll in that situation <laughs> is to not do that, is to not make those predictions. To add credence to my earlier point, there's an internet page that says that John the Baptist is typically portrayed with a large mop of unruly hair. Mm. So my head grown slightly bald. Yeah. So he's um. He's not only no prophet, but he's no possessor of hair. <laughs> yeah. And well, and John the Baptist is really interesting too, because, you know, he's always wearing like animal skins and he's an odd combination of someone who is fearless and has, has this sort of animalistic quality, but at the service of a higher power because he's, you know, he's an ascetic at the same time. He's kind of an impossible combination. He's kind of a mensch. I think John Cassavetes would be the one to play him. In a- oh, yes. That would be so great. <laughs> but, but you know, he's kind of like Michelangelo, I guess. Mm. Because Michelangelo has is also kind of a strange combination of things in that he's like this hyper-manly, virile... I mean, I don't know. We, we could call John the Baptist virile, but... You I know, think so. I, he, I think that that's, that's the image I'm getting from what you said, yeah. 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 But but also, I guess with... with no one could accuse Michelangelo of, of being an ascetic, but I guess... The art component, the art half of it is what we get in, in Michelangelo. The idea of being an artiste, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, b- balancing out the other side, a masculine, uh, um, uh, animalistic side. Mm-hmm. Not that being a man and being an animal are, are the same thing, but y- you know what I'm trying to say here. Yeah. <laughs> I have to backtrack every, every claim I make about <laughs> either gender before someone gets mad at me. I mean, it's as if he he thinks he has to be that type of guy, whether it's the virile type or the ascetic type or maybe the artistic type i mean i i am no prophet the, the suggestion now seems to be that if if you could predict if you were certain i had this fantasy when i was younger you know in college if i just knew that she would say yes i could <laughs> if i just had that gift of prophecy or you know you tell the mutual friend hey i'm interested if he just had that that gift of prophecy he could move forward but he's not this is supposed to be some kind of Herculean task, right? The moment of greatness. Mm. The proposal is going to be the moment of greatness. I mean, with those stakes, who can who can win, right? Without prophecy, without certainty of success, then he can't go forward. Well, I think that this stanza represents that moment. Like, I think that even though he's sort of telling it in the past tense, 
I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker. I think that as, as he says that, that's it. That's the moment passing. Because then in the following stanza, the moment has passed. And now mm. he's sort of Monday morning quarterbacking the whole, mm. the whole situation. <laughs> that's good. But, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I think that's it. That's, and, he, and he sees the footman holding his coat and snickering. And, and so that, that moment of greatness is actually that John the Baptist moment. <laughs> so there's something about that that's, uh, it's like the height, the height of the moment, but it's also like this sort of like castrating image at this, happening at the same time. Mm. And then nothing. Yeah, I, I like the idea of leaving the apartment or, or the, leaving the, the house, right? Being shown out by the butler or something is, is that becoming the eternal footman. Mm. So goodbye. Off to Hades with you. For the people who can't act, that's the place. The shadows. Oh yeah, what circle of hell is that? <laughs> right. What's a good name for that circle of the hell? The, the nine the and friend. a half circle of hell. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'd be the friend zone circle. <laughs> oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's the uh, nine and a half. I like that. Yeah, the in-between yeah. number because they couldn't decide which one or the other. <laughs> right. You want to read the next stanza? Sure. And would it have been worth it after all? After the cups, the marmalade, the tea, among the porcelain, among some talk of you and me, would it have been worthwhile to have bitten off the matter with a smile, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, to roll it towards some overwhelming question, to say, I am Lazarus, come from the dead, come back to tell you all, I shall tell you all, if one settling a pillow by her head should say, that is not what I meant at all. That is not it at all. I like your way of putting this, the Monday morning quarterbacking and asking. So now he's imagining, right, the rejection and whether it would have been worth it. He's doing the, he's doing the risk-reward analysis here, but it's too late. <laughs> mm-hmm. We're still trying to figure out what is so monumental about this that he can't do it. So here he's fantasizing about a moment, I guess, which is you know ultimately humiliating i mean this this phrase squeeze the universe into a ball which again gives you the idea of the stakes is really it seems to be some version of screw your courage to the sticking place well it's from to his coy mistress oh right yeah give us that line as well let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball and tear our pleasures with rough strife through the iron gates of life Thus, though we cannot make our son stand still, yet we will make him run. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow, when you read that in next to Proofrock, that is quite yeah. something, right? Yeah, well, that's what I that's what I was saying last time that it's it's this is almost like a direct answer, it seems like mm-hmm. to that. Or hopefully it, the other way around that you read Proofrock first and then you get the remedy, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> you know, the antidote. Um this is carpe diem, right? This is, mm-hmm. and this is tear our pleasures with rough strife. This is willing to be, to inhabit that sexual plane and to inhabit the, the aggression inherent in that. You know, here in Marvel as well, there's the idea of doing something to the cosmos, doing something to the universe, to, to life itself, the iron gates of life, and um, affecting the sun itself. So this idea of this cosmic dimension to love it's interesting. Mm. You know, I, I guess the, the, the rolling up our sweetness into one ball is sexually evocative, right? Mm-hmm. And in this case, it's, uh, it's not about that pairing of lovers. It's about just him and uh, the universe. The Lazarus image or reference, 
I looked that up and it, it could be two Lazaruses or Lazari. And I think I like the second one better. So there's Lazarus that, that Christ actually raised from the dead, but then there's the beggar Lazarus who returns in place of the rich man who mm. was not allowed to return from the dead to warn them about hell. So basically like um, this Lazarus is almost like a, a Jacob Marley figure mm. come to warn Scrooge about, uh, about hell or something. Okay. So what does it mean in this context? He's, it's as if he's saying that the moment of the proposal would have been a moment of prophecy. Is that right? Oh, I guess so. I guess I was thinking of this as post-prophecy, that the, the action of doing this would have been like a death. But you're right. It, that doesn't make any sense. It's, it's that the moment of proposal would be to inform, oh, oh, maybe to say, I'm not dead, I'm here. <laughs> You've been thinking of me as a, as mm. a, a dead person, as a non-entity, um, yeah. but I'm actually alive. Yeah, this is really interesting. I, I haven't fully, I hadn't fully thought, I thought I had thought this through, but it's as if he has to convert or um, convey something of the divine to people who have lost that sensibility that that's his task almost, right? Mm -hmm. Some sort of religious conversion. To not being mean to him anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's my message to you is... Please be nice to me. <laughs> the Lord did say that you shall love me. In <laughs> the other Lazarus, right? He's um It's one of his miracles. Yeah, but Lazarus was loved by Christ. Like he was a really good friend. Hmm. Christ particularly liked Lazarus. They were very close. So he heard he was dying and Christ got there too late. He was already dead. So they said, you know, forget it. You got here too late. You can't. I'm, I'm doing all this from memory. I hope I'm getting it right, but mm -hmm. yeah, that sounds right. So Christ was like, that's okay. I can, I can, I can make this right. I, the reason why I don't think it's that is because Prufrock doesn't seem like someone who, who would equate himself with someone who was loved by Christ or who, for whom special favors were used to restore him. It seems more like he's seen behind the veil and, uh, has come back. Well, in, in the case of the first La or the rich man, Lazarus, that he comes back to help other people. But in this way, it seems like Prufrock is seeing it as, as a kind of a curse or that his message is going to be something that the woman is uninterested in. So it's not going to be this, this revelation that's going to cause people to turn from their ways. It's going to be that he's going to make this big proclamation and it'll be a big revelation. And, and then she's going to say like, so what? So in the story, so he show, he intentionally shows up late and then the sisters of Lazarus, one of them is named Martha, which I love. Martha and Mary. <laughs> Martha, yeah. and Mary. Martha says, you know, if you, my brother wouldn't have died if you'd come here on time. And Jesus, that's when you get the, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And it's on her affirmation of belief that the miracle is performed, right? Mm -hmm. Didn't John the Baptist actually prophesy something like this or am i imagining that oh maybe okay like it's one of his signs or something so in any case it's a it's a proof of his his divinity right mm -hmm. the raising of the friend lazarus that seems like too grand a thing for proof rock to acquaint himself with or to um associate himself as mm -hmm. so it seems like it would be the first one obviously both of them technically are in it you can't evoke one and not the other if lazarus is the one doing the preaching here Look, I'm, you know, I was raised, I was raised from the dead. It's a good reason for belief. I'm trying to fully make sense of this metaphor, but I haven't. 
or the solution. Yeah, I guess it's the fact that he comes back with a message too. But I guess there's also the idea of Lazarus being, Martha is one of my favorite people in the Bible because she's great. She's very like Mediterranean woman, but she explains to Jesus, like he's been dead for a while. He's going to smell. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, that always struck me as being very real and gross, you know, when I was a kid. So maybe, <laughs> so maybe Prufrock is saying that when he comes back from the dead here to tell this woman how he feels, he's going to smell or, you know, like he's, in other words, he's a musty old bachelor, maybe and he can't come back from that. Yeah, I think that's it. It's a second chance. You know, Lazarus had a second chance at life, and this is supposed to be his second chance at love. It's another reference to being a middle-aged person trying to propose. Mm. Okay, well, let's kill Lazarus again and move on. Yes, let's do it. Not that he was killed in the first place, but I don't know. I I do want to say just I I love the whole settling a pillow by her head and just sort of the very casual, you know, that's not what I meant at all. But the... It's not just rejection, but it's it's the feeling that it's not important to her and that there's been this miscommunication. And would it have been worth it after all? Would it have been worthwhile after the sunsets and the dooryards and the sprinkled streets, after the novels, after the teacups, after the skirts that trail along the floor, and this and so much more? It is impossible to say just what I mean. But as if a magic lantern threw the nerves and patterns on a screen— Would it have been worthwhile if one, settling a pillow or throwing off a shawl and turning toward the window, should say, that is not it at all. That is not what I meant at all. So after the sunsets and dooryards and sprinkled streets. So this is further imagining that he's, it's later in the evening, I guess. People have left, maybe they're still, he's imagining that they're still talking about this and he's had to expose himself to her in some way by this sort of x-ray metaphor and explained all of his thoughts and she's thrown off the shawl that's around her arms and walked away from him perhaps across the floor or he's walked away from her so now he's the subtext of this drink everybody at home is um (laughs) she's rejecting him and saying you know i had no idea you felt this way and well gee proofrock this is very sudden and i don't feel the same way about you and blah 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 And, and he's had to explain all of his feelings and 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 so now there's this um break between them and he's humiliated and can never go back mm-hmm. there. That's what I'm imagining. Yeah. Is the <laughs> I put in all image. this effort, sunsets and door, you know, yeah, yeah. I took you out to see a sunset. This is how you repay me. Novels. Did, did he have to actually read? <laughs> so I'm reading war and peace. Proof rock up late all night till 6am. Just trying to cram the novel so that he can <laughs> talk a, to her about Brown it. Thing. Yeah, yeah. You mean I read War and Goddamn Peace all night <laughs> and it got me nothing? Yeah, love the image of the ma- magic lantern mm. throwing the nerves and patterns on a on a screen. The sense of having the you know his innermost being exposed, and then nerves is ambiguous between just his nervousness and possibly his fear and cowardice on the one hand, and then just the inner workings of. His body, his brain, his mind to be so exposed. So in the moment, this this gives us some more insight into right into what's at stake with the moment of the proposal and why it seems to be of cosmic dimensions. It's because it's in the ultimate self exposure. There's there's a whole universe inside him mm-hmm. patterned in in nerves, and to to propose is to reveal that, to put that you know, to show it almost like a movie. The rejection would be a core rejection of his core being. 
the fact that it's revealing to her, it reminds me of, I don't know if this, this is predicting like an MRI. I don't know if it would, would line up with an MRI or CAT scan or whatever, but like, you know, when you, um, when they take brain scans and then poke you or, or hurt you some part of your body and then you watch the brain light up in Mm -hmm. that region, you know, that's, that's kind of what I'm, what I'm um, thinking of that he wouldn't be able to hide how much she's hurting him in that moment. Mm. would be very obvious and that and that image of the brain or the it wouldn't be a, an mri for for elliot obviously it, it wouldn't be the brain necessarily but but some sort of like um dissection movie or something like that but that cranial sort of circle of like the night sky lighting up in, in one particular region cosmic i think is the word you used yeah i think it's good because it gets us back to the being sprawling on a pin right on the wall these things are related because in both cases he's kind of like a scientific specimen there for study in both cases it's that there's that pigeonholing quality where you know if you reduce people to their brains and nerves and things like that it's there's a or to their physicality their animality it's just becomes a become a more mechanical product of those forces or of one's character there's this moment of vulnerability and ultimate exposure here and again it's not unrelated to the pigeonholing stuff that's happened before and so it gives us a little insight into what it the stakes are that this involves potential humiliation and um, we're getting a little bit here about what humiliation really means this ultimate powerlessness this ultimate deprivation of freedom and spontaneity the irony of course is that he he deprives himself of that freedom and spontaneity up front if he doesn't propose, but the fear is that he will be deprived of it if he does. Mm. All right, shall we move? move yeah, on? let's do it. <laughs> Almost there. No, I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. Am an attendant lord, one that will do to swell a progress, start a scene or two, advise the prince. No doubt, an easy tool, deferential, glad to be of use politic cautious and meticulous full of high sentence but a bit obtuse at times indeed almost ridiculous almost at times the fool he actually sounds like polonius here right this well progress that that sort of um list of things neither a borrow nor lender be blah 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 yeah this is um politic cautious and meticulous this is uh a little bit of um iambic pentameter here i think i think he's he's doing a little ventriloquism with shakespeare here yeah see thou character give thy thoughts no tongue nor any unproportioned thought his act be thou familiar but by no means vulgar those friends thou hast and their adoption tried grapple them to thy soul with hoops of steel but do not dull thy palm with entertainment of each new hatched unfledged comrade beware of entrance to a quarrel but being in bear it that the opposed may beware of thee give every man the ear but few thy voice take each man's censure but reserve thy judgment costly thy habit as thy purse can buy but not expressed in fancy rich but gaudy for the apparel oft proclaims the man and they in france of the best rank and station are the most select and generous chief of that neither a borrow nor lender be for loan oft loses both itself and friend and borrowing dulls the edge of husbandry this above all to thine own self be true and it must follow as the night the day thou canst not then be false to any man farewell my blessing season this in thee so this is polonius to laertes and hamlet before he's about to take off is he, he's going abroad to to college is that what's going on <laughs> <laughs> why is he sending why is laertes off 
It's for school, right? I think it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I laughed, but I think um, it is. I know that's lengthy, but just to give some of the flavor of that and the similar flavor here. This is a very important stanza to me in this poem. I really like it because uh, I think there's nothing sadder than saying I- I'm not even, um, it's something that, that I'm actually very interested in this idea that you're so pathetic that you're not even the main character in your own life, you know, mm. and you're not even the most indecisive character in history. <laughs> you're, you're, you're the secondary character you're not, you're in a play. You're not heroically about- indecisive. Right. You're just overly right. cautious. Yeah. Not even that. I, you know, I'm not the Mary, I'm the Rhoda. Um, that's the, <laughs> which I always wanted to be the Rhoda, but that, but that's, it's very sad when you're the, you know, when, when you're the supporting player who's in your own life, who's providing funny punchlines and ways to move the, the, the B plot forward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Swell of progress. Right. That makes me sad for him because I actually do understand this. I don't understand much else um, going on here on a personal level, but I understand this one. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the idea of deference here, right? So, so for Hamlet, what is it about? It's more about tortured, existential angst and and mm-hmm. almost you know the lack of certitude about whether his suspicions are warranted and sort of a um, lack of confidence about whether his suspicions are warranted. So, so here mm-hmm. by contrast, it's just deference. It's just I I'm a follower. Yeah, here to serve. <laughs> yeah, and that will get you friend zoned every single time. <laughs> Whereas the other one will get a girl to kill herself over you. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Hamlet was a bad boy. That's what that's what the Ophelia is like. You're tearing me apart. <laughs> <laughs> and then the fact that it's it's kind of presented as, you know, high sentence, like someone who's kind of pompous and presents all of this as a kind of wisdom, but it really comes across as obtuse to the nitty gritty of life. And that's the foolishness. So there's a further element of humiliation here, which is that, you know, it makes me think of, uh, again, of Guido and the preemptive absolution and, and presenting yourself as a good person, as a good guy, nice guy, when um, that misses the point and that, in fact, you have to get beyond that to make a move. Okay. Good. I grow old. I grow old. I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. <laughs> Well, I think that's self-explanatory. But. <laughs> so he's going to be walking on the beach, right? So I think that's, you know, that's mm-hmm. a good reason to have your... Yeah, that's just practical. Like what old people are afraid of tripping over themselves, so they have to roll up their trousers. I've never heard of that before. I've heard <laughs> of old people wearing like pants that are too short for them. Yeah, I don't know if it's a reference of some sort to something old people in particular do, or if it's just the fact that he's... There's an old man walking oh, barefoot, I get it. I get barefoot it. on the beach now. I was associating a conditional relationship here. Uh, never mind. I've been reading this wrong this mean? whole time. I was like, I was thinking that because he's growing old, he has to work. Uh-huh. <laughs> Nothing. This is embarrassing. I've just been reading Whoa. this wrong for 16 years. That's all right. He has to wear the trousers? <laughs> yeah, like old people wear their trousers rolled. I don't know. Well, no, I think that might never be mind. it. I mean, no, I think that actually might be it. Can be just a kind of an old man thing to do i think that's entirely possible but it can also be the walking on the beach well it's also an old man thing to part your hair behind well let's yeah exactly these are all old men i think you're right these are all primarily these are old men kinds of things to do you want to read the next part yeah shall i part my hair behind do i dare to eat a peach i shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach i have heard the mermaids singing each to each i do not think that they will sing to me so the comb over is is a consideration here. <laughs> Mermaids are definitely not into that. Yeah. <laughs> 
eating a peach, uh, I don't know, because of dentures? Yeah. <laughs> or yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. And then the, the white white flannel trousers have to be rolled up to walk on the beach. Not a bad I don't think that's a bad look myself, but No, neither do I. You could be a sexy old man. Most interesting sure. man in the world. Oh yeah. <laughs> there you go. And he's heard the mermaids singing, so he's he's heard the magic, but then they're not gonna sing to him. So that sucks. Why is it mermaids here? Sexy ladies with seashell bras. Is that what it's about? <laughs> Those sexy armed mermaids. We get these mythical creatures. I guess part of it is the unobtainability, right, of the mermaid. Mm -hmm. They're not just women, but women as unobtainable. And I, I don't know, do mermaids really hang out with mermen or is that just a Disney thing? I think they just hang out with each other in coves and <laughs> yeah. comb their hair with forks. It's like the Amazonians, you know. Yeah. In a way, they're not in, the, in need of men. And then there's this that half- fish quality and the um something primitive and regressed in the sense of having returned to the ocean or not fully emerged from the ocean like human beings they're half half ragged yeah submerged in this kind of realm of fantasy the suggestion seems to be that this is part of what's been going on as he's been thinking of ordinary real life women in terms of this fantasy i guess we'll understand this better when we read the next stanza I have seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back when the wind blows the water white and black. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown till human voices wake us and we drown. Very sad and great. Mm. It's a nice little inversion here with the idea that to be asleep in this fantasy to be asleep in the sea is to be able to survive it and breathe it it's waking up that will actually kill you when you would expect of course the reverse to be the case mm. i mean the lingering in the chambers of course is a reference to lingering in the chambers of the women you know for tea and all that mm -hmm. you're transformed into this this fantasy it's like a teenage boy who plays video games 14 hours a day <laughs> being submerged in the fantasy and then Unfortunately, it's the spell is broken when mom calls you down to dinner or tells you to do your homework. <laughs> and that's that's what's going to kill you. There's a book by Douglas Adams, the guy who wrote the Hitchhiker trilogy. There's there's a I forget which book this is, but there's this idea that you in order to fly, all you have to do is jump out of a window and then forget that you're falling. Mm -hmm. And if you want to breathe underwater, all you have to do is to not be awake to the fact that the water is water, that you're in water and it somehow it's to be realistic about these things, which drowns you. You can survive it by being oblivious or something. Yeah, no, I like that because that's like a self-forgetfulness, which is what Prufrock is incapable of. Right? Mm -hmm. So, But the, the mermaid's voice puts you in a trance, though they're not singing directly to him. I don't know. Is that a thing that the, mer you know, I'm thinking of the well, sirens. Yeah, it, it does too, seem so. to evoke the sirens, definitely. Mm -hmm. Who, if they were singing to him, of course, it would be a trap and it would be right. the thing that would lead to his destruction, their, their seduction. But yeah, in this case, he's, they're not going to sing to him and that's not going to be the way things go down. Do we have anything else to say or should we? I'm still trying to think about, you know, what it means for human voices to wake us. And, and it's interesting, of course, right, that the last stanza, it's suddenly us again, mm -hmm. us and we, after quite a while. It begins with you and I, and I think um, it's I for almost all the rest of the poem, right? Here he yeah. is back with this imaginary companion, which could be himself, of course, again. It could be all the men who fall into this category. Mm -hmm. 
I think there is a connection to the sirens, right? So if the sirens had been singing to him, then he would be lured to his own destruction. And in this case, they're not actually singing for him. And, you know, in, in the case of the sirens, right, they lure you into a kind of fantasy that will end up drowning you. Mm. I guess that's a comment on, you know, or it expresses a con- concern about female seduction and what it means. And, mm-hmm. But again, he, here it's another reversal in which he's been in the water, you know, he's been in the chambers of the sea waiting, not acting. And it, now that he's old and on the beach, that's in a sense what it means to drown, to have woken up. To have woken up is just to be at the end of his ways and days without being romantically tied to anyone. Hmm. So ironically, it's the, you know, with the sirens, you get seduced into making a move and that's what kills you. His, it, he was lured into somehow seduced into the friend zone, <laughs> seduced into being in the proximity of women, mo- mo- moving towards them enough to share drawing rooms with them, but not to go any farther. So mm. it's a seduction into friendliness in a way. And in the same way, it's predicated on illusions about women and feminine charms, right? So we get in with the seaweed red and brown. They're wreathed with seaweed red and brown. It makes me think back to arms and hair and things like that. Mm. So in both cases, it's a objectifying kind of illusion about what women represent and they, uh, what it means to idealize them, what it means for relating to them to be something of cosmic importance that requires screwing up the universe into a ball in order to to make a move. It's to give them more significance than they actually have in fantasy. And and a psychoanalyst would call this transference or would would call this, you know, this sort of idealization would have something to do with an attempt to read something maternal into the feminine and to, to have a relationship with a woman be evocative of an early relationship with a maternal caretaker, let's say. So that's one angle on this and why the stakes get so high. And so you transfer your early childhood feelings from mother to sexual object. You know, According to this theory, women and men do this. And it messes up human sexuality because it's weird in various ways. It's not only incestuous to associate love objects with your parents but it's also evocative of like this return to the sea right it's evocative of the womb and it's evocative of merger it's evocative of a time when you are not fully separate from the love object and so that you disappear into it and you're destroyed by it destroyed by your love mm. and so in this case you know the, the fantasy is to idealize women and, and imbue them with these qualities in the case of the sirens you are seduced to your death because of that in his case, he's seduced into inactivity because the stakes are too high and what it means to drown is actually not to be related at all, again, to be on the beach old. Yeah, and, and so he dies a, a solitary figure. What I get from this is he's, he's no longer even going into the drawing rooms with women. He's, he's completely alone and has, has unmoored himself completely from society and real relationships mm-hmm. with people to the point where... Hearing a human voice and entering into that community causes death to him. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's uh, that cheered me up. <laughs> uh, I was having a difficult day, and there's nothing like a beautiful poem like this to bring you out of that, to wake you up. We'll revive you in the postscript. <laughs> that's a little advertisement for our postscript. 
don't wake me with a human voice because you know what that does all right so thank you thank you and thank you to everyone who listened to this episode I just wanted to say that if you're listening to this on the feed for the Partial Examined Life, you're not yet subscribed. You should subscribe to us directly by searching for us on the podcast app of your choice. And if you like us, a rating or review would help a lot. You can also find us at subtextpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to our email newsletter. To get ad-free episodes and a variety of bonus content, please subscribe at patreon.com slash subtext. Bonus content will include our after show, which we're calling Postscript which consists of an extra 15 minutes of discussion following the regular episode. Sometimes we'll continue talking about the topic for that week. Sometimes we'll discuss what else we've been reading, writing, and thinking about. When the time comes, we'll be responding to listener emails. And sometimes we'll talk a little bit about ourselves. Subscribing will also get you the occasional full bonus show and several prequel episodes that I did with various guests. Send your feedback and episode requests to letters at subtextpodcast.com. You'll also find us on Facebook at Subtext Podcast and on Twitter at Enjoy Subtext. And once again, thank you for listening. Thank you.